Well, every now and then when we are recording one of our sermons, we come across a little snafu while doing so. Either something happens with the recording itself, it gets corrupted, or something like that. Well, that's exactly what happened in today's sermon. And so what we have is about three quarters of the sermon uh, from our original recording that I'll begin playing. And then about three quarters of the way, I'm going to jump in like this and continue with the sermon. Now, I'm not going to be able to preach it the way that I was able to preach it with our church in, in, in front of me, with us together as a body. Uh, but I will read the rest of uh, the sermon. Um, I, if you don't know this, am someone who does manuscripts, so I write stuff out. Helps me think with my ADHD. And so um, I have everything kind of written out that I did say that day, and so it won't be the exact same, um, but alas, hopefully it will be helpful uh, for those of you who weren't able to join our gathering, especially as we are going to be continuing uh, in this study throughout the book of John and picking up and in our next sermon, uh, which will be done on February the 11th, uh, with uh, the text that comes right after this. And so I wanted to make sure that I got this out uh, before February the 11th. So uh, thanks for showing some grace and patience with us. So on to our sermon. All right. Well, as we are beginning uh, to study this text for today, uh, I want to do so, one, with you, making sure that you have God's Word in front of you. Uh, there are a couple of things we're going to notice and see in today's text. I want to make sure that you see up here a note taker, a writer, an underliner, highlighter, something. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, and, and I want to I do so and kind of begin our study by, by reading the last verse one more time to ensure that we don't miss the impact that Jesus' Word has on these crowds, these people that are they're hearing Him speak. The kind of impact that, that this text also means to have in your life and in mine as we read it and then apply this text into our lives. So look at me at that last sentence, verse 30, and, and we read there, many believed in him, in Jesus, when they heard these things. Right? We, we know that, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so what we see happening at the very tail end of our, of our section today, they, they have heard the words of Jesus, the things that we're, that we're about to to read and walk through, and they are believing upon them. I mean, these are some astounding statements, right? The things that include, like Jesus saying, for example, I am the light of the world, which is a true statement, but for them, it's a shocking one. For you, you're like, yeah, yeah, light of the world, I get it. But for, for them, it's a, it's a shocking statement, it's an astounding one. And, and then furthermore, Jesus claims, he has this phrase in there, you might have just, just missed it as, as Teresa was reading through it. Maybe in your study this week, you, you caught it, and you're like, what is that? He says, he says that he is the, the I am, or the, the I am he, right? We're, I was talking about that with, with our kids on the, way, on the way here. He says, I am he. What does that mean? And they're like, well, it means that he's God. I'm like, well, yes, I'm glad that you know that. Uh, but for them, they wouldn't have known that, right? So, so he makes this, this huge statement, which is, which is shocking, that he is the I am he of the Old Testament prophets, which in, in essence is a, is a veiled reference that he uses, but, but would have been blasphemy, claiming equality with God the Father had they fully understood what he was saying. And then furthermore, Jesus here, even right at the very beginning, look at me in verse 12, he says it's only by following him that we can leave the paths of darkness and have or possess or hold the light of life. Only by following him. And Jesus isn't alone in making these statements about himself either, we notice in our reading, but rather God the Father is his co-witness, testifying on his behalf that all of these things are true. And there are many who heard Jesus' words, we had just read for us, and they believed in him. Isn't that wild? They didn't see a miracle, and someone rise from the dead. They didn't see something crazy happen. They, they heard him preaching about who he is and claiming where his authority comes from, and they believed in him. Now, now, their faith is a shaky faith. We will see that next week. It's not sturdy. But, but we, we see clearly that they can't deny Jesus' words or his authority. And I was praying and I was working through the text this week. I did so asking God that that might be true of us today as well, but in a much greater way than the men and women of our text. I, I don't want us to leave here today having a, have a shaky faith. Uh, that, that will end up rejecting Jesus as we see some of his stunning claims. But rather, I pray that as we're walking through, that you and I might be given this rock-solid, sturdy, kind of immovable 
kind of faith that is built on the words of Jesus, exactly what Chris said a moment ago, so that you and I might follow him, that, that you and I might not walk in darkness any longer, but walk in the light as he is in the light, and that the light of Christ, the light of life that he gives us would be ours, and that might overflow into our lives, demonstrating that we, in fact, belong to him. Now, those are lofty goals for a sermon. Like, I can't, on my own, I can't make any of that happen in your life, like zap you. I, I can't make that happen in your life. But the great thing about God's word is that, that as it's open, preached, and walked through, God can work these little miracles in our hearts as his people. And so what I'm praying is that God would work just hundreds of little miracles in our hearts over and over again as we open up God's word and walk through it, that his word would do its work in our lives by the Spirit's power. So what we're going to do, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive back in. And what you'll notice as we go through, there's kind of two rhythms of this text. Right? There's the beginning of a conversation, verses 12 to 20, and 21 to 30. So I'm going to get to the end of, I'm going to get to verse 20, and you're going to feel like, hey, we're over. You pack up, let's go. Where are we going, to, where are we going for coffee or this weird meal after uh, words? Like, what are we doing? But, but we're not. We're still going, 21, 21 to 30. So don't, don't, when I get to 20, don't say, hey, we're done. We're not. We're going to dive right back in. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. So, Father, Father, as we come before you and we ask these audacious things, I pray today that, that we might be transformed by your word. Father, I pray that, that we might not be a people who claim to know you and yet walk in darkness. Those who claim to love you but walk in rebellion against you and your word. And that neither in our hearts or minds or bodies. Rather, I pray that we might, as Christians, as those who have or possess the light of life within us because of our faith in Jesus alone, as our Savior, God, and King, I pray that we may not walk in the flesh. I pray that we may not give ourselves to walking in darkness, but rather that we might walk in the light, as we said, as you are in the light, that our faith might be evident to all. And for those who are here with us that are exploring Christianity, I pray that you might work this miracle in their heart as well today. Father, that you might draw them to see Jesus' words, that, that they might be given eyes to see, minds to comprehend, hearts that are soft. They might be given faith to be exercised, that they might believe upon Jesus today as their God, King, and Savior. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's start right up at the top, verse 12. And as we begin examining our text, one of the things that we see is that little word, again. You see that, verse 12? Again, Jesus spoke to them. That, that ties this entire scene that we're talking about today, not to last week's sermon, the one that Matt did, where we talked about the, the woman caught in adultery, but before that, Chris's sermon. Remember, remember Chris's sermon from two weeks ago? It was stellar. Stellar. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful text where, where we see in chapter 7 that Jesus has come to Jerusalem for this Feast of Booths, which is one of three feasts that, that uh, are, have been given to mark the Jewish calendar when everybody would just kind of descend upon Jerusalem to remember how God provided for his people in their wilderness wanderings. Remember, they're, they're leaving Egypt, right? Let my people go. They leave Egypt, uh, and then they're, they're on their way to the promised land. That, that period of time when they, they left Egypt and are on their way there. So, so to celebrate and to remember, as God commanded them, the Israelites would build booths that they would sleep in for a week. It's like, it's like going camping for a week, but, but you would like build it out of sticks and such. Uh, and, and there you are. There you are. You're, you're building, you're camping, camping for a week. And, and one of the things they would remember during this week-long feast was how God himself led his people in the wilderness wanderings through the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as he led them by his light into the promise, providing and protecting them as they go. Thus, here at the Feast of Booths, one of the big highlights of their celebration centered around light, right? You have a pillar of fire at night that leads you. So to, to remember that, light is a huge part of Feast of Booths. In fact, what we know from history is that in the temple during this feast, there were the, these, these four kind of massive lamps that would be lit every night in a huge, it'd be like a huge praise and worship night. People would just be gathering together and they're praising and they're worshiping God for his faithfulness throughout the ages. And, and then they would look forward to some of his covenant promises that they, that they aren't seeing yet as they're still captured by Rome and longing for the day when, when the Messiah would come. The light of God would just extend from, from sea to sea to sea, as we say here in Cal. Right? And that was, that was, their, that was their, their hope and their aim. So there was this, this massive celebration that would, that would happen in the temple. And, and so firstly, there was a massive celebration in the court of the women. 
which is where the women would hang out. I know the name is confusing. Uh, I went to public school, but I got that one, right? Court of the Women is where they hang. So, so in the Court of the Women, they would have this, this, huge, uh, this, this huge party. They would be uh, joyfully singing and dancing throughout the night, much like, much like the women did. Do you, do, you remember when, do you remember when God saved his people through the Red Sea Road? Remember that God opens up the road, they go through. The Egyptians are like, hey, let's follow them. And then God's judgment comes crashing down upon them. And then you remember one of the first things that happens after that is Miriam, Aaron's sister, she gets some tambourines and she's like, let's all sing. And she like writes this awesome song right there in the moment. You're like, girl, get it. Uh, and and so, so they would all sing and dance together. That's, that's kind of the idea here. They're, they're, the women are gathered together. They're, they're praising God. They're dancing and singing of God's salvation, his protection, his presence with his people throughout the ages. They look forward to what he will be doing. And then the men, not being wanting to be outdone by the women, they would also join. And men, we would also dance, but you would do it in a very manly way. In fact, I found throughout uh, looking in some history books that you would do so in a much more dangerous way. You would be holding torches while you're dancing, which if you're going to be dancing, holding a torch, that's the way to do it. You know what I mean? It's manly. Just don't get it on your beard because that'll singe it. But other than that, uh, you'd be holding torches in your hands, singing songs, praising God. And then there are these massive Levitical orchestras that are just playing all the night through. Thus, during this feast every year, Jerusalem was filled with music and joy and dancing, but also the city was just illuminated with light from the temple, producing this glow over the entire city. It was a party centering around the light, remembering how God led his people by light and the promises that one day his kingdom would come, its kingdom of light. And if we're going to kind of briefly fast forward then through Israel's history as a nation, going from going from uh, when God led them, began leading them uh, by that light, what we'd notice is that this allusion to light is constantly picked up as a reference to God himself, specifically his presence among his people. All the way from this time in Egypt would, would be, would be this, this theme that we could just trace, this thread all the way throughout the Old Testament. His presence among his people would be described as light. I'm going to give you a few examples. So you the pillar of fire talk about that one. Uh, God's presence as he led them as they were leaving Egypt. But we also remember Mount Sinai, don't we? Exodus 19. The entire mountain, if you remember, if you were here when we preached through Exodus 19, the entire mountain is wrapped in smoke when the presence of God comes upon it because the Lord descended on it in fire. Fire has light. Right? So, so his presence is there among light with his people. And the whole mountain is just buckling and creaking under the weight of his glory. Also, I, I thought about this this morning as I was thinking about it. You remember Moses? Remember when he went and, and met God face to face? What, what happened to his face when he came back? He glowed. That would be creepy. You know, no wonder they told him, like, can you put a bag over that? That's too much, bro, too much. It, it was glow as a result. It was so bright he had to cover it because he had been in the presence of God, presence of light. Over and over again throughout Israel's history, this allusion to light is just picked up as a reference to God, leading David to write in Psalm 27, 1, to write and then teach Israel to sing those words, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Not only that, but throughout the Old Testament, we're also taught that the word of God, the very law of God, is a light that has been given to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. In the next slide, we then see it's also God's light that it's been shed abroad in Revelation, and it's light that marks his very presence we see in, his, in the book of Ezekiel. And also, goes, God goes out as light to save his people, as we see in Habakkuk, chapter 3. This is what we read. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, and rays flashed from his hand. We also see in Isaiah that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, was appointed as a light to the Gentiles, that he might bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6. And then the last slide of, of this discussion, we also remember from Isaiah 60, 19 to 22, and Revelation 21, 23 to 24, that in the coming eschatological age, in the end times, the end of all things, that this would be the time when the Lord himself would be our everlasting light. One of the main expectations and themes of light during the Feast of Booths, as Israel looked back and remembered their, their history and then looked forward to that coming day. In fact, many scholars believe that one of the most crucial scripture readings during the feast came from Zechariah chapter 14, that there would be this, this coming at the end of the age, the promise of continual light. Now, we could trace this out a whole lot more, but I want to just give you a little taste of that so that in light, 
of all those references? Not all of them are going to be winners. But uh, when, when Jesus stands up on this day during the feast, where they're remembering, they're looking back, and then they're expectant, looking forward to God's promises. When Jesus stands up on this day during the feast and claims, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Paired with the phrase, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, friends, we simply need to recognize this would have been a direct connection to the feast at hand, right? Israel is led away from slavery by the presence of God who is their light, and if you walk with him, you're leaving darkness towards the promised land. Jesus said, I am the light. If you follow me, not darkness, but have life. Friends, do you see how immediately they would have looked at this audacious claim of Jesus? I am the light of the world. And immediately you're like, bro, I don't think you can say that about yourself. You know what I mean? Like if one of the names of God is the light and our salvation, and you stand up and say, I am the light. That, like that's blasphemy. Unless it's true. So, so immediately... Immediately, they, there would have been these, these, these illusions to light, all these things swirling around in people's minds, and they're like, what is he saying? You're looking at the light from these pillars that are, that are lit. Brothers, you probably still have a flame in your hand. And Jesus says, I am the light. We're here to celebrate. The Lord is our light. I am the light. That, that would have been a, that, that's a sweeping claim. That's an audacious claim. Like, that's, that's wild. And he's claiming to be that light they're gathering to remember. He, he's saying that the light that led their ancestors in the wilderness has now come to dwell in their midst. And that he alone can lead them to the promised land of eternal life. He's the light of the world. Let's think about this phrase, light of the world. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. I think you could have like nine, 19 sermons on that phrase alone. Uh, but I'm going I'm to just mention four things, I think, for us as Christians that are really important for this phrase. Uh, so if you're, if you're not a Christian yet, this, this is important for you as well. But if you're a Christian, this is something that's really important for you to recognize in this statement. He is the light of the world. It means at least four things. They, these aren't original with me, but, but they are true. So what is this phrase, the light of the world? What does it mean for us? Firstly, it means that the world has no other light than him. He is the light. If there's going to be... Any light in the world, it will be Jesus. It's, it's, like, it's like what I said earlier today, either on social or in, the, in our signal group. I, I saw, a, saw a thing this past week from, uh, from a coffee shop saying like uh, about light. Uh, what is your light? It's, uh, some, without light, there's no darkness. Some, I, don't, I don't remember what it said. Uh, but, but what is your light? If, if there's no light at all other than Jesus, that means any other light, a lesser light compared to him is really just darkness. If there's going to be any light in the world, it is Jesus. It's either Jesus or darkness. There's not a, a third way. There's not a middle way. There's not a third alternative. It's either Jesus is the light or there's darkness. Apart from him, there is only darkness. Secondly, it means that all the world and everyone in it needs Jesus as their light because without him, they remain in darkness. Again, there's no other light. Thirdly, it means that the world was made for this light. This was one of the most beautiful things this past week, me just praying through this and thinking through this. See, that he is the light of the world, meaning that Jesus isn't a foreign light to this world. Meaning, meaning that, that he is the owner of this world. And when he comes into the world, the very intention of God in creating this world is that his light would fill it. That the light of Christ would come, first exposing sin and calling us to follow him as he is the light of the world. But that's a beautiful thought, I think, and to be reminded that, that he is not a foreign light. The world was created for the light of Christ to come and to fill it. Leading us to a fourth observation, one thing that we just talked about a moment ago in Zechariah, Isaiah, and Revelation, but it's important to note here as well, and it's this is that we are guaranteed that there is a coming a day when the world will be filled with the light of Jesus and nothing else. 
if you're a Christian, this is a really important reminder for you of the promises of God. One that one that that we can cling on to in the midst of dark days. Like like as you're walking through darkness, you you're rubbing up against stuff that are pretty dark in your life. This is like this is like an anchor to your soul, tethering you so that you don't just get washed away by the storms you're walking through. It, it, it means that it, it means that one day there will be no darkness; there will only be light. Which is good news because it reminds our hearts that are so prone to forgetting that there will come a day where there's no more darkness in governmental leadership. There will be a day where there's no more darkness needing a justice system whatsoever at all. It means one day there will be no more murder or theft or sin of any kind. It means as well there will come a day when there will be no effects of darkness in your bodies. No more effects of the fall. Meaning that you won't get hangry anymore. But, but more than that, there, there won't be any more cancer, no more dementia, no more Alzheimer's. There will be no more darkness within, no more gossip or slander or greed or lust, no darkness. That on that day, Jesus will banish out of creation all darkness, and there will only be light. All the works of darkness will be banished, and all the sons and daughters of darkness will be banished as well, which is why Jesus calls hell the outer darkness. There's no light there, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in opposition to that, Jesus says that he will fill the world, so much so that there will be no need for a sun any longer, because he will be our light. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that the craziest thing in thinking about the new creation? That all of a sudden, the sun isn't needed. Yesterday, I was driving in really thick fog. Anyone else really thick fog the last two days? Just, I can't see. I can't see anything in front of you. And then, the sun came out. And do you know what happened to the fog? Gone. The, the beauty of when the light of Christ comes is that there will be no more darkness. For on that day, there's no more danger, there's no more sin. Rather, there is the light of Christ so that the sun itself is not even needed any longer. Is that wild? So in, th in those ways, Jesus is, I think, the light of the world, probably more ways. You're, you're smarter than me. You can probably think of other ways. But, but one of the beautiful things about seeing that is that in what we see in Jesus say here is that if we follow him now, we will have him light now and in the age to come. We'll be welcomed as sons and daughters of light. And as sons, he will continually throughout our lives call us to walk in the light and not in darkness. Because, friend, what fellowship does darkness have with light? None. Thus, if, if we are in his light, if we are in the light, we should walk in the light and not in darkness. Meaning that we are to constantly be putting off darkness, putting to death the sins of our flesh, putting off jealousy and strife and bitterness, malice and sexual immorality and pursuit of holiness as God's people. Friends, that's what it means to follow him, to have him as your light. It means that we don't walk in opposition to him any longer, but rather we are submitting ourselves to his light and we are following him. Not only that, but the other implication of following Jesus that we see here is that, that we will have, hold, or possess the light of life. Which is a beautiful phrase we saw from the beginning of John's gospel. Do you remember? John chapter 1. We read this, all things were made through him, Jesus. Without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verses 9 and 12, we read, he is the true light, which gives light to everyone. He came into the world, and to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And here Jesus is standing in the temple, proclaiming that he, the light of the world, has come, and issuing you a promise that if you will come and follow him, you will not walk in darkness any longer, but rather with Jesus, you will be in the light, and you will have the light of life. You will be a possessor of it. See, see how this would be an astonishing claim to make? Like, like if you want to walk with God like our ancestors did, the ones that they're there celebrating this day, then come and follow Jesus. You won't walk in darkness any longer. Jesus will be your light, and he will give you the light of life. I was 
think about that. Can you imagine this situation, how crazy this would be to you? If you were there this day, like, like you've come to Jerusalem every single day of your life, or every, every single year of your life, you've, you've come to celebrate the Feast of Booth, however old you are, a couple of times, 15 times, 30 times, 45 times, 90 times, however many times you've come to Jerusalem to celebrate this day, be, being reminded of the promises of God, and then here Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness and you'll possess life. Interestingly enough, however, I don't know if you noticed that in your study this week, after this verse, the next 17 verses say nothing about the word light ever again. Isn't that weird? Did you notice that when you're reading through? You're like, I, I wanted to make this whole sermon Jesus just saying, I am the light of the world. I made about a fourth of it that way. But, but I want to make the whole sermon, I'm the light of the world. But, but it's one sentence. And the whole rest of it, it's like a rabbit trail. People start asking questions and Jesus kind of follows them on it answering questions, saying, saying how he can, as the Son, be saying these kinds of things. All we see are encounters to a whole bunch of objections to Jesus' sweeping claims, and the objections are all centered around one question. Does Jesus have the authority to make these kind of astounding statements? The whole question around these verses, verses, verses 12 all the way down to verse 30, is who does Jesus think he is in saying things like this? At a time like this, when we gather to remember God's faithfulness and he shows up and says, I am this light that led you and I'm here again. If you don't follow me, you'll keep walking in darkness and you will have no life. If I said that rightly, you'd say, bro, who do you think you are? And that's exactly what we see unfold. The first objection to Jesus' claim comes in verse 13. Look at me. The Pharisees say, they'll hear what Jesus says, and they say to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, that statement seems weird, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem like a weird statement back to Jesus? Nobody else thinks so. I'm it. All right, that's fine. I think that's a weird statement to say back to somebody. What, is that, what does that mean? Does that mean? That doesn't even make any sense when you just read it, right? Like, just because someone bears witness about something that happened to them doesn't mean it's immediately false. You know what I mean? Like, like if, you were, if you were in a car wreck this past week, officer shows up, what happened? You tell them, he looks at you and says, false, you're bearing witness about yourself. You're like, bro, I was in a car wreck. And he's like, nope, you bore witness. Like, that doesn't even make, that doesn't even make any categorical sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a strange statement. Why say this back to Jesus? Well, it's actually because it's a statement Jesus made in John chapter 5, verse 31. If you want to flip over with me, you can, you can look there with me. Jesus says in John 5, 31, as he's talking about the authority that he has from the Father, Jesus said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Did you hear that? So Jesus makes a sweeping statement. I am the light. If you don't follow me, you're going to walk in darkness and have no life. And, and they, they come back at him with one of his own statements. They rip out and they throw it back at him and say, you're testifying about yourself. You are not telling the truth. So, so, so then the question is, and this really is a problem in the text. The question is, what do we do with that? Because Jesus did really say this. And what I'd love to do is just leave you pondering that for hours. I would just love to say, that's it, go home, goodbye. Uh, and, then, and then you're like, dang it, what do I do with that? But I won't do that. I won't do that to you. I, I wish I could. But these are the kind of things that are important for us to reconcile with as Christians. So, so I'm going to resolve it for you by taking you back to John 5, and I wanted you to look at the context with me to see what Jesus said and if he's being misrepresented or quoted correctly. So, so as you're looking at John 5, just remind you of what's going on in this chapter. Look at the headings, and you just remember the context. You remember that, that um, we began John 5 by seeing Jesus heal an invalid, right? A, a dude who couldn't walk for 38 years, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Remember that? In, in doing so, Jesus told the man to take up his mat and to walk home, thereby breaking some kind of man-made religious law that the Pharisees had created now, we remember those are not real laws. These are not God's commands for his people. They're not the law. Rather, they're kind of like a mandate. 
Uh, there are these additional laws that have been created to strong-arm people into doing what they wanted them to do. And these laws are crazy. For example, do you remember on the Sabbath, there was a law that you couldn't carry anything bigger than a dried fig. Nicely done. What a crazy thing. But that's not part of God's law. It's part of tradition. So Jesus doesn't, in fact, break their law, but rather their tradition. In this conversation with the religious leaders, Jesus claims in John 5 that the reason why he can break their traditions is because of his unique relationship of equality with God the Father. And there, at the back end of John 5, we see this whole conversation open up around the authority of Jesus. And Jesus claims that he does nothing of his own authority, but rather, as he hears, he judges, and his judgment is just. We see that in chapter, John chapter 5, verse 30. Because he seeks not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And this is where Jesus says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, however, and Jesus knows that his testimony is true. Jesus here then specifically is speaking about the testimony of God the Father who joins him in the testimony of Jesus that he really does have authority to hear, judge, and act, and speak on behalf of the Father. And the Father's witness, we remember, is seen in three main ways. Firstly, the Father sent John the Baptist. Remember, he was a great witness sent by God. There was a miraculous birth and ministry given to him uh, to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. Secondly, the Father gave miracles and signs that Jesus performed, which Jesus says are greater than the witness of John the Baptist. And then thirdly, Jesus says the Father gave the scriptures that bear witness about Jesus, which are the, the greatest witness. Thus, in John chapter 5, Jesus is not saying that if he says anything about himself at all, then it must be not true. That's ridiculous. For the reason I pointed out a minute ago, I, I can say, I am a Canadian citizen, I am married, I have some kids. And you'd say, false, because you're lying, because if you bear witness by yourself, you're wrong. And I'd say, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. No, rather, we can do lots of things like that, say lots of things like that, that are true about ourselves. Just because we're saying it doesn't mean the opposite is, in fact, true. And Jesus here is saying in verse 31 that if the burden of evidence to support all these tremendous claims that he is making exclusively depends on his own self-attestation, then his witness would be false. However, God the Father also attests along with him that it is true. So, so Jesus doesn't attest for himself. The Father also joins him in testifying. That's the whole point of Jesus' argument in John chapter 5. So what we see then in John 8, if you flip back over to, to John chapter 8, what we see there is, is that the Pharisees grab some of Jesus' words, rip them out of context, copy and paste them into this new argument so when Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, and you'll have the light of life, they don't hear him, they don't want to hear him, and so they take his words and they twist them to make Jesus say something that he never intended to say in the first place. Like, has anybody ever done that to you? Like on social or in other life or even an argument in real life with somebody, you say something and they think you say this other thing, and they're like, well, you're saying this. You're like, I'm not saying that. Like, yes, you are, because you said this other thing over here. He's like, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about over here, though. And you just ripped me out of context. Right? That, that can happen to all of us in a myriad of, of situations. This is exactly what's happening here with, with Jesus. So, so what we see unfolding in verse, the next 17 verses, then, is Jesus' response to them. The entire section of Scripture, therefore, is really all about the authority by which Jesus can make the kind of sweeping statements that he just made. And it's eerily similar to John chapter 5, where Jesus follows them on this detour and just answers all kinds of questions about his authority to make these kinds of sweeping claims. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus doesn't begin by looking at them and saying, guys, you're totally dumb. You took what I said, ripped it out of context, and you're just being like he could have done that, right? That ever happened to you in a conversation? That's oftentimes if I say this one to my kids and they misunderstand me, I'm like, bro, I did not say that. I said, and then I relate what I said. Ever happened to you, parents uh, or teachers, <laughs> uh, right? What you said is, is important. He, he doesn't do that, though, but surprisingly, he, he follows them. And in verse 14, Jesus responds by simply saying to them, look at what he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? For, or because, Jesus grounds that statement by saying, for I know where I come from and where I am going. Namely, he came from above as he was sent and commissioned by the Father. That's where he come, came from. And he knows where he's going. He's, he's headed to the cross, then to die, then his body will raise from the dead, then he will ascend right back to his rightful place at the right side of the Father. He knows where he came from, and he knows where he's going, to the Father's side. 
So because he knows his own unique origin and destiny, Jesus is saying is that he has every right to bear witness about who he is. He uniquely can speak with the authority of God the Father. He really can bear witness all about himself. But, he says, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Thus, they have no right to speak of things they don't even understand. That's like a pretty authoritative comeback. You know what I mean? This would be like, if you've ever been in a class and somebody raised their hand and they said something they thought was really, really intelligent, and then the teacher just like ninjutsu karate chopped them, vocabulary-wise, and then they were just left like in a pool of like, oh, I don't understand anything. That, that's that's kind of like what, that's, that ever, never happened to you? That happened to me once in class. I thought it was smart. I wasn't. Uh, it, this, is a, this, is an, this is an authoritative comeback. Jesus then doubles down and flips the script on these guys in verse 15 and tells the Pharisees that their main problem, the reason that they don't follow Jesus and see him rightly as the light of the world is because they don't know how to judge things rightly. He says this. He says, you, however, in opposition to him, you judge according to the flesh, whereas I judge no one. Now, that phrase can be a bit confusing the first time maybe you read it. Um, I mean, Jesus says here, I, I don't judge anyone. You're like, does Jesus doesn't judge anyone? Like, no one? That might be your first reading of it, but as we've seen in the Gospel of John so far, we're told that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, John 5, 22, and that an hour is coming when Jesus will judge everyone at the final judgment, John chapter 5, verses 27, 29. We then saw in John 5, 30, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus doesn't mean here that he doesn't judge at all, because even in verse 16, Jesus says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So, so what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying I don't judge at all. No, rather he's contrasting the way that he judges and the way that they judge. Thus we see in this section two different kinds of judging. Like we saw in John chapter 7, 24, there is the kind that judges by appearances and there's the kind that comes with right judgment, judgment from the Father. See, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here is that they simply judge by human standards with their silly man-made laws and according to the flesh as those who give rules, right? For thee, but not for me. It's like what we saw in last week's sermon. This woman is caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, and Jesus says, let him without sin be the one to throw the first stone at her, and one by one they walk away, right? Beginning with the older ones, thus at the very words of Jesus, they had conviction in their hearts that they had judged improperly. Thus, Jesus says, is how they always judge. They judge by outer appearances, by moral law-keeping, by religious judgment. But Jesus doesn't judge like that. This is one of the scariest things about Jesus, by the way. See, because at church, you can make yourself look really good. You know what I mean? You can show up, buttoned up. How are you? I'm great. How's life? Wonderful. How's everything? It's perfect. The Lord is so kind, it, and, and yet internally, th this is not how you feel. Internally, you're walking in darkness and in opposition to God, at war with God, but externally, you can see that things look kind of nice. But Jesus doesn't judge like that. Jesus knows your motivations. He knows your desires and your longings of your heart. He knows what is in man. He knows what's in you. He knows what you think, what you feel, how you're doing these things. There's no hiding with him. He judges perfectly. What Jesus is saying is he judges perfectly, and they do not. That's also why when they see Jesus standing before them and making the statement to be the light of the world, they aren't able to assess him rightly either. It's because they can't judge by any other way than judging according to the flesh. See, their main problem, you see, is that the same problem that Nicodemus had in John chapter 3. They can't see rightly, they can't judge properly because they have not been born from above. They haven't been born again. They don't have spiritual eyes or a mind to comprehend. That's why they can't judge rightly and, and, and they don't know God. They have his word, they long for the Messiah, but they don't have eyes to judge Jesus' words rightly nor to see him as the fulfillment of all their longings. So Jesus looks at these men and says, I don't judge like you. No, rather, he says, my judgments are true. It's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Again here, the authority that Jesus claims is once again that he does nothing apart from the Father. Thus, even if he does judge, Jesus' judgments are true. Then he points in verse 17, in your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. The Father who sent me, he bears witness about me. 
So when Jesus makes these astounding claims to be the light of the world, and that if you would follow him, you won't walk in darkness anymore, but have the light of life, Jesus is bearing witness to the truthfulness of that statement. And simultaneously, so is the Father. Yet in response to this, they said to him, where is your Father? Now, now, now again, Jesus just said something incredibly profound, but they misinterpret him all over again. They're like, oh, where's, go grab Joseph and bring him over then. Let's have Joseph, the little carpenter boy, come stand in front of us. Yeah, okay, where's Joseph? They misinterpret him all over again. Jesus has been talking about his unique relationship with God the Father, but what they are doing is, they, is what they just accused him of doing. They're not judging things rightly, and they totally miss the point. They don't know who Jesus is. They do not know where Jesus comes from, and, and their inability to see Jesus for who he is demonstrates their spiritual blindness and that they don't know God the Father either. As we see in Matthew 16 17, it's only the Father through special revelation who can reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ. Thus, their lack of seeing who Jesus is is further evidence that these religious men do not know God. Now, they know a lot about God, but they do not know him. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He looks at them to their faces. Can you imagine? These guys are the biggest religious dudes around for all of Israel. He looks at them square toe to toe. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Friends, this is a stunning rebuke to these guys. They think they have eyes to see, but they don't. They're judging things wrongly. They don't even know the father. And it's here where John pauses the story to let us know this conversation took place in the treasury, in the temple. Yet again, no one arrests Jesus. Presumably, we would imagine he would, they would want to arrest him. Right? We remember from, from John chapter 7 that there was an arrest warrant for Jesus that had been issued, but here Jesus is in the temple speaking, and again, nobody arrests him. Remember, remember we, we talked about that, about how, how crazy it would be to, if you're a police officer to receive a, hey, go arrest this guy, and you, you go and you say, no one ever talked like that guy, I just can't arrest him. Like, you're like, bro, no, no, that's not your job to make that decision. You arrest him and bring him to us, we judge him, that's our job. And yet again, he's in the temple again, teaching and preaching, and nobody arrests him again. Why? John simply says it's because his hour, the hour of his glorification, when he would be lifted up on the cross and suffer and die as our substitute for our sin, that hour had not yet come. There was more for the light of the world to do before the darkness would try to snuff him out unsuccessfully. The text then continues, verse 21. We see this word again used, just as we did in, in verse 12. We see it here, letting us know there might have been some kind of a pause, but then this conversation begins in verses 21 to 30 is connected to what Jesus has just said. The conversation, again, is centering around the authority of Jesus to make the sweeping statement that he did in verse 12. So Jesus is the one then who picks back up the conversation. He looks at them and he says, guys, I'm going away. Now, now here, Jesus is referring to his death, his resurrection from the death, and then his glorious ascension back to the right hand of the Father. And, and Jesus says, so I'm going away, and you will seek me, you will seek me. It's an interesting phrase. It, 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 it probably doesn't mean that they will seek Jesus himself, but rather that they will be seeking for the Messiah, which Jesus was. They're going to still be looking for the Messiah in their desire to seek him, but, but, they, but they won't see Jesus. So I'm, I'm going to go away. You will continue seeking for the Messiah. And then Jesus says, and you will die in your sin. Now, I want you to know something. This is where I told you if you're a writer, circular, underliner, note taker, right here. Notice here this word sin is a singular word. It's not a plural one. We might wonder what this sin is. And looking at the context, I believe that the, it's the, the particular sin here is references to a particular sin of unbelief or their rejection of Jesus. That is why they will die in their sin. It's because they're rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. They're seeking after the Messiah, yet they're refusing to believe upon Jesus as the Messiah. So, so they will walk in darkness. And where Jesus is going, they cannot follow him because they refuse to do so. They're rebelling against the God they claim to worship and serve by remaining in unbelief, and they're not coming to Jesus and believing on him. For as, as Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Thus these men are in spiritual eternal danger. If they persist in their rejection of Jesus, they will, Jesus says, die in their sin and come under the righteous judgment of God. But the beauty of this conversation is that Jesus is confronting them to their faces. As such, this is really a gracious invitation to these men, that they don't have to walk in darkness any longer. Right? Jesus is beckoning them to follow him, to judge rightly. So the question here is, do they have eyes to see that Jesus is the light of the world? That he has come to give 
light and life to all who come to him, that he is the image of the invisible God on brilliant display before their very eyes, will they come? If so, if so, Jesus says, they will have life and light. They will be pardoned for their many sins. They will be redeemed and restored and welcomed to the table of God as his covenant people by faith in Jesus alone. So the question is, will they come? But again, they misunderstand him. We can tell they respond by murmuring to themselves, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? I mean, they just totally misunderstand him, right? And, and it's here we recognize that Jesus is speaking in pretty cryptic words and doing so on purpose. Why, we remember that his ministry, like Isaiah's, was one where he would preach and the people would hear but not understand. They would see but not perceive. It's not until later on that all this would make sense, but for now they're very confused. And they wonder what Jesus means by this strange statement. I mean, would he kill himself? Is that how he's going to depart from this world and go where we cannot come? Is he going to die and so be buried so we can't follow him into death? What's going on here? And the whole question is kind of ironic because we, we know what will happen. Jesus will lay down his life. Not in a suicide like they imagined here, but in submission to his Father's will. He, he will lay down his life as the better Lamb of God who takes the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. And then he'll be raised back from the dead three days later. And after his ascension, when he's seated at the right hand of the Father, those who believed upon him can go where he is so that, so that we'll follow him, so, so that when we, when we close our eyes in death, we open them and see his glorious face. But, but for those who do not believe upon Jesus, they will die in their sin. They, they cannot go into the beneficent presence of God. Rather, they will enter into the resurrection of judgment, hell, where they will suffer under the righteous wrath of God against their sin of unbelief for an eternity future. But for now, the crowd is, is really confused, right? Where can Jesus go where we don't find him? And notice how interesting it is. Jesus doesn't answer their question. He, he doesn't say, guys, I, I'm going to go to heaven, right back to the right hand of the Father where I came from. Right? He, he doesn't say that. Rather, he, he furthers this, this, this metaphor. He says, from, uh, he, he says that you are, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In this, Jesus is telling these men and women this earth-shattering reality that he comes from an entirely different realm, one that is antithetical to theirs. Right? It'd be like trying to tell someone that they lived in the upside-down world or the bizarro world, but, but that's the only world they've, they've ever known. All they know is darkness and depravity, and Jesus comes from somewhere completely antithetical to the domain of darkness that they have known. He is from above, meaning he's not of this world, but rather from heaven and sent by the Father. They are from below. They are from this created world that has been marred and marked by sin ever since the fall, where everyone is in conscious rebellion to its creator. The contrast is really between these two realms, the realm of God himself and the realm of his fallen, rebellious creation. That's fundamentally why they can't understand anything Jesus is saying to them. He's testifying to himself about who he is, but they refuse to see it. They can't recognize him, nor can they understand his teaching. See, at the end of the day, nothing has the power Nothing has the power to remove this blindness from their eyes except by being born again from above. By being born from above, being taught by God, hearing the words of Jesus and being given faith to believe upon them. In verse 24, Jesus reaffirms that he has just told this crowd. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, he, you, you will die in your sins. Now, there's two important things I don't want us to miss in this verse. Firstly, we see that word sin there. It's It's plural. In verse 21, it was singular, but here it's plural, leading us to remember that it's for the sin of unbelief upon Jesus as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, as the light of the world. It's the sin of unbelief that, that no one will be permitted to follow Jesus into the very throne room of the Father. But as we persist in our rebellion against God and our rejection of Jesus, what we see is that in our lives, our lives will become marked by all sorts of rebellion against God, sins. So the sin of not believing in Jesus will lead to sins, of rebellion against him, right? We're not gonna walk in the light, but walk in the darkness. And all we can expect from living our lives in this way is to die in our sins. Now, the second thing that we cannot miss in this verse is the glorious offer that Jesus makes for this crowd of sinners. It's an offer that extends to all of them. And through the preservation of his word, according to the mercy of God, it also extends to you and I and to everyone who has breath in their lungs. And it's this, there is a way to not die in your sins. You get that? You see that in the text? There's a way to not die in your sins. Jesus says, you will die in your sins unless you believe I am he. Well, now you might be wondering, well, who is he? Unless you believe that I am he. So who, who is he? Now, if you have your Greek Bibles with you, uh, 
you you will notice, I don't know if you do, you will notice uh, that the phrase in Greek doesn't have the word he alongside of it. It's just the words I am. So in Greek, what Jesus says is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. However, I think the translators from Greek into our English versions are giving you and I a really beautiful gift here by including this word he into our English text because we might miss what's happening if we aren't careful. For example, um, if we heard the or Jesus say those words, I am, our minds naturally as Bible-reading, Bible-loving Christians go to and think through the book of Exodus, right? We were there a couple of of months ago, book of Exodus, or maybe a year ago, uh, Exodus, right? So Exodus chapter three, right? Moses asks for God's name uh, as he is going to the Israelites to tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is gonna liberate them from slavery. And God tells Moses, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. So, so we might think that's what Jesus is saying here, to be the I am of Exodus 3.14. Is that what he's claiming? Now, to be clear, I think he could be, maybe cryptically. But here, if the Apostle John wanted us to make a stronger connection to Exodus 3.14 in our minds, he would have used some different Greek words from the Septuagint, but, but he doesn't. However, the phrase that he does use is one that comes up over and over again in Isaiah 40-55. to And there, this phrase that Jesus takes to his lips and uses is the same phrase that Yahweh, God the Father, uses to disclose his own identity. It's that phrase, I am he. So, so I think your English translators did a good job of including the word he in our English translations because it lets us see what's happening in the Greek. And it connects really well with Isaiah 40 to 55. Now, to be clear, Jesus using this phrase in Greek, this phrase, I am or I am he, uh, is still a claim at divinity, but it's a more veiled one. And nobody hears Jesus use this phrase and picks up rocks to stone him for blasphemy, right? For claiming to be God. That moment will come. It will come in the next, <laughs> next week's text, but, but it's not right in this moment. So again, what I think is happening is that Jesus' words are still going over their heads. They don't understand exactly what Jesus is claiming. But he is, he is claiming something really important with this phrase. And I'm going to show you two instances in Isaiah real quickly of this phrase, I am he. The first is in Isaiah 41, verses 2 to 4. So Isaiah chapter 41, verses 2 to 4. This is what we read. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. So this is God using that phrase, I am he, about himself. Then Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 13. God says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall I be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver me from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? So while Genesis, or sorry, well, Exodus 3 might be the passage that would first come to mind when when we're looking at this, we see much stronger connection in the Gospel of John to the book of Isaiah, and especially here in this vocabulary, where Yahweh takes to his lips this phrase, I am he, meaning I am the same, or I am forever the same, describing his saving and redeeming work and his presence among his people as the bedrock of why they can have confidence in him. And Jesus takes this exact phrase to his lips. He's taking upon himself a title that only belongs to Yahweh. For you or I to claim this would be blasphemy. And this is one of those claims that Jesus uses in his tantamount to claiming deity. And the crowd, on hearing Jesus' words, understands something of what he's saying because they look at him in John 8, 25, and they say, Who are you? Jesus responds to them by saying, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Meaning that Jesus isn't adding anything new here. He's been saying these things from the very beginning if they were really listening. Not only that, but Jesus says, I have much more to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Now, in this again, Jesus is claiming that his authority and all that he says comes from the Father. Therefore, Jesus speaks exactly what he has heard and does nothing of his own authority. Now, verse 27 is a bit of an explanation to us, the readers, so we can understand and kind of have a peek behind the curtain a little bit to ensure that we aren't lost in the conversation. So John writes, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. <laughs> I'm glad he wrote that. Because again, they don't understand everything that he's saying yet. We might be confused as we're reading through, but, but John wants us to know they didn't understand yet. And so John then writes, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Thus, the very full disclosure, the greatest revelation of these things will happen when Jesus is lifted up on the cross as he stands condemned in our place for our sin. Jesus says, then you will know, then you will know that he is the Messiah. Now, you might wonder, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? Does this mean that at the cross, the crowd here, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, they will all fall on their faces, repent of sin, and believe upon Jesus as their Messiah? <laughs> no. How do we know? Because that's not what happened. Rather, what we see is, is that many of them persisted in their unbelief, in their sin, looking for a Messiah other than the one that God had provided in Jesus. So what Jesus means here is that you know, Jesus isn't promising that when he's lifted up on the cross that in that moment they'll all be convinced that he really is the Messiah, but, but rather what we see unfold is that one of the functions of the cross is to reveal who Jesus really is. It's through his death, burial, and resurrection where the peculiar identity of Jesus will be brilliantly seen and believed upon by all those that the Father will draw to himself. And even those who don't believe will one day stand judged and condemned by the one that they lifted up on the cross, and they will all one day be forced to kneel and confess Jesus Christ as Lord as they come under the divine wrath of the Father for the sake of their sin of unbelief that bloomed into a garden of unrighteousness. See, now or later, but eventually, all will recognize who Jesus is. Jesus then goes on to affirm in verse 29 that his confidence that the Father who sent him is with him. And even in his subsequent sufferings as he's headed to the cross, Jesus knows that his Father is always with him. He's not left him alone. Jesus always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. In response to hearing these precious words of Jesus on this day, along with this offer to come to him and escape the judgment of God against their many sins, we read that there are many who believed in him. <laughs> Friends, this is still the offer on the table if you are not a Christian. Even now, you can come to Jesus and he will receive you. He'll pardon you. So come, believing upon him as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who stepped into time to live the life that you ought to have lived, a life that always pleased the Father, and then to win your forgiveness. He stood condemned in your place as your substitute, facing the just judgment of God that you may not have to. He died and then he rose bodily from the dead, securing your salvation so that you might have the forgiveness of sins and might follow him, walking in the light and having life here and in the coming ages. So the question is, will you come to him? He's ready and willing to forgive you even now. Now, for those of you who, who are Christians, I have five really brief things for us to consider as we seek to apply this text into our lives in greater ways. Firstly, we see that Jesus says that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, which leads you and I to ask a question about ourselves. As we examine our lives, as you examine your life, would you say that that's true of you? Are, are you walking in the light as he is in the light? Are, are you putting to death the sins in your life or are you walking in darkness? Are you repenting of your sin, turning away from it, or are you comfortable and complacent in the darkness? Friend, may, may today be the day where you repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, put to death the deeds of the body, and putting sexual immorality, greed, drunkenness, gossip, slander, and a host of other sins to death. Walk in the light and put to death the deeds of the body, thereby demonstrating to the world that you really do belong to Jesus, that you're a daughter of the light, a son of the light, longing for his coming kingdom of light to cast out darkness of this world. Secondly, secondly, pray that you would be given maturity as you continue to get into God's word until it gets into you so that you might judge things rightly and not wrongly. Friends, don't judge according to the flesh the way that the Pharisees did, but pray that you might continually be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. Third, when you sin and fail to do what you ought, remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, who is perfectly righteous in your place. So when you sin, remember that his perfect righteousness is now yours by faith alone, and rejoice that your merits don't earn your right to approach the throne of grace. Fourthly, look forward to the day when darkness is no more. It will be cast out of this world and banished forever. Fifth, until that day, remember that God is with us. Jesus assures us in Matthew chapter 28 that he is with us always to the end of the age. So brother and sister, remember that Jesus, Jesus has not left us. Our God has not left us. Rather, God the Spirit has been given to us permanently. He convicts us of sin, convinces us of the truth of scriptures, and empowers us as God's people. So let us walk in the light as he is in the light, turning away from the darkness and looking forward. 
to his coming day.